I'm Taffer. And I'm Bailey. Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club and you're invited. Yeah! Yeah! After the uh, success of our Anne of Green Gables read-through and um, taking into account that people don't really feel like doing lots of brain-loading stuff right now, we have decided to read through the Harry Potter series for the next seven weeks. Uh, This is a, a process that we've kind of known that we had to do eventually. And I think probably about every six months we go, is it time to do Harry Potter? Mm. Because Harry Potter has kind of been done to death. Uh, you know, it's it, the first book came out when I was but a youth. It's It's been around for like 20 years. And sometimes it feels like everything has been said. Um, but it is still one of those quintessential YA series. It did really change young adult literature. And it's a, an important work of literature in the canon. Now, the other complexity of it, of course, is that that the person who wrote these books uh, is uh, just increasingly, increasingly revealed herself to be a particularly shitty person. And um, we don't believe that we should be deprived of Harry Potter just because the author sucks. But we are not going to say the author's name <laughs> in these recordings. Um because we believe that Harry Potter is bigger than the person who first wrote the series and we don't have to give credit to somebody who really has a lot of views that go against a lot of what we stand for here at the Yeah Podcast. But this week we are talking about Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, also known as Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Bailey, is your copy Philosopher's Stone or Sorcerer's Stone? My copy is Philosopher's Stone. Um, I have the... The sort of, I think of them as the iconic, like, Raincoast editions, which are the, like, Canadian ones that you get everywhere with the, like, um, well, this this one has the illustration of the Hogwarts Express and Harry making a very surprised face. Um, and yes, it is Philosopher's Stone. Do you have a Sorcerer's Stone copy? Because you spent your youth in the United States of America? I do not, but I I do have a Philosopher's Stone copy. I actually have a little story about that. So I started reading Harry Potter uh, before I moved to the States. It came out before I moved. And uh, right before, I think, there was a summer... We had friends, family friends, who would get a cottage near our house. And uh, my friend's mom... Ita, who works at the University of Ottawa, would actually read these to us and um, or read the first one. And I believe it was actually not out in Canada yet. Uh, It was first published in Great Britain in 1997. And I think it was around 1997 that we read it. I moved to Boston at the end of 99. So sometime in those two years. And I'm pretty sure that she had a friend in the UK who sent it. Uh, thinking her son, who was, you know, we were around eight at the time, would enjoy it. So I actually read Harry Potter before it landed, uh, really, in in North America. And um, then moved to the U.S., I think, before reading the second book. 
and was really confused about why the title was different. So that was the original Raincoast edition. Uh, and those are the covers that kind of like feel like the OG to me. But I have the Bloomsbury edition that have the illustrations. Um, and I believe I bought this. So this one has the illustration of uh, Wizard's Chess on the front. And I believe I actually bought these while I was working at Paragraph Books in downtown Montreal um, because I have a lot of siblings and the Harry Potter series, the Raincoast ones, went to somebody else. One of my sisters has them. I didn't get them, so I, I had to buy my own um, series. But it was kind of fun because because we got into Harry Potter real early then when we moved to Cambridge my parents met like a different group of Christians who like all didn't let their kids read Harry Potter and I think it was somewhere between the fourth and fifth books my parents became aware of this and were like should we be not letting you guys read these books and at that point I mean we were all teenagers at that point I think me and my my two sisters the three of us are the youngest in the family we're just kind of like we go to the library how are you going to enforce this <laughs> Um, and and my parents were like, yeah, fair, okay. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. So I feel like I should tell my Harry Potter origin story now as well. Absolutely. Um, which is, this is a very classic um, child Bailey anecdote as well. So, so Harry Potter became big here, I think. I was probably in like grade four-ish, five-ish when it started to become big. I distinctly remember seeing there was like a poster on the wall of our school. Like it was must have been like a library thing or maybe somebody's book report. I don't know. Um, that had like a blown up copy of the cover. It's not the covers that I have. It's like the other one with it's got the weird like scroll work at the top and then like Harry on a broom flying through some sort of like tower or something. I think it must be the scene from the end. And I remember, I have a distinct memory of seeing that on the wall of the school. And my my initial opinion about all this was like, I, I, nah, that doesn't sound that cool. I'm not going to read that. Everyone else likes it so much, but like, I'm sure it's not that great. I, no thank you. Um, so I was, I was a nine-year-old hipster, essentially. Um, and so I refused to read Harry Potter for like a good year, probably at least. And then one of my very good friends... Um, had a birthday party shortly after the first movie came out, which now I am... When did the first Harry Potter movie come out? When I was in grade five. Uh, so that would have been... Okay, so I would have been in grade four. 2001. 2001, 2002. Yeah, okay. So shortly after the first... Yeah, so I would have been nine. So shortly after the first movie came out, a friend of mine had a birthday party, and um, we watched the first movie at her place. Um, and I was immediately like, this is the coolest thing ever. I must read these books immediately. Gimme, gimme, gimme. And, and at that point, the first four were out. So I, um, so I read, and I remember, I also remember distinctly, I borrowed them from my cousin, uh, the first time I read them. And I remember seeing them on his shelf and he had the first four. And I remember looking at them and thinking that it was like the first three and then like a book that had the first three compiled into one volume because, that's approximately the size ratios of them. And then he was like, no, that's the fourth one. And I was like, what? <laughs> so large. Well, yes, that is my, my Harry Potter origin story. I um went to see the first Harry Potter movie 
on a field trip with in grade five. Grade five is the first year that I went to school. I had been homeschooled until that point. I had not been exposed to many movies on the big screen. It may have been the first movie I saw in a proper theater and not like in a projector at the library. I had not seen very many movies in general beyond the musicals that my parents had and a few animated movies that my uncle gifted us, I think, in a desperate bid to get us watching like anything made for children. And the scene at which, so in the book, when Harry like touches Quirrell, um, his skin just like blisters. And in the movie, they have him turn to ash and explode. Um, and I started crying hysterically at that point. I have no tolerance for for like violence and unsettling body things happening in movies still to this day. I have built a little more tolerance. I can watch the first Harry Potter movie now. Uh, but I just burst into hysterical sobs. Uh, my teacher had to come over and be like, are you okay? Do you need to go out of the theater? And I was like, no, it's okay. Um, yeah. But I'm honestly very impressed that you watched the movie first because that is not that is out of character, I feel like, for you. It's at least for like younger me, very out of character. But I I at this point you have to understand had no intention of reading the books. I was like, these are these are silly and overrated and I don't need them. Um was my attitude towards Harry Potter at that point. So I literally watched the movie because I was at a friend's birthday party. And that's what we were doing at the birthday party. And then it was like, oh my goodness, no, I love this. What hooked you? I actually can't remember at all. I don't have a vivid memory of like watching the movie and how I feel felt about it. I just like very much remember that that's how I started reading the books. Okay. Um, I don't actually have a strong memory of like the first time that I read the first three books. Um, I have a strong memory of the first time I read the fourth one because I definitely, like, after I read the first three, I started reading the fourth one. Excuse me. Um, and then, uh, like, couldn't really get into it. Like, because there's, like, a hundred pages of that book before they get to Hogwarts. And, like, 11-year-old me was like, I don't know. And, and then I, like, picked it back up, like, a year or two later and then got really into it. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's, that is, that is my origin story with Harry Potter. And, uh, and it sparked a sort of lifelong love. I have no idea how many times I've read these books now. Which brings us to this rereading. And I think, yeah, I'm excited that we're finally doing it on the podcast. Like you said, it's, it's been pretty inevitable from the beginning. And I think that this is the right time. And I think it's going to be so interesting because as, as I was doing my reread of The Philosopher's Stone, I was trying to think what to say. And this for me is particularly difficult because I listen to, I listen to several Harry Potter reread podcasts. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to think about things to talk about and things that I'm interested in bringing up that aren't just rehashing, this is a really good thing that they said on Witch Please, or this is a really good thing that they said on The Gaily Prophet, which are two excellent Harry Potter podcasts if you need a completely Harry Potter podcast to listen to. And, and I think one of the things that I'm interested in talking about and thinking about, at least for myself as we do this reread, is... Um, like we were saying, the author of these books has just increasingly revealed herself to be kind of a trash person in a lot of different ways. And, 
And I find, especially with this first one, we'll see, we'll see how I feel as we go forward. Um, I just, I notice the ways in which that shows up in the texts a lot more um, on my recent rereads. And, and in some ways, that definitely does make me enjoy them less. Um, and so I'm interested in focusing on this reread for myself, on like trying to figure out what it is that I have always loved about these books and what I can like still love and hold on to um, in the midst of sort of all all of the things that are really problematic about them. Um, and so I'm interested in sort of taking taking that sort of exploratory journey as we as we do this reread. I uh, the the last time I reread this um, before, you know, this this reread was about a year ago. I read it to my kid. And that was really interesting because I think when you're when you're reading to your kid, you can't skim over things as much. And I was yeah, again, like I, re I remember being really startled by like there being some things I wanted to not say out loud to my child. There being some things that I just like felt like I had to explain. Um, the one that stuck out the most to me, and I know Witch Please has talked about this. I don't listen to as many Harry Potter podcasts as you do, but I have listened to Witch Please before. Is the fat phobia that is uh, just rampant. Um, not everybody who is fat is bad, and not everybody who is fat who is bad is fat. But if a bad person is fat, their fatness and their badness are absolutely correlated. And we see that, like, with Dudley, right? Like, just so, so horribly in this book. He is a tiny child, you know? He is a baby. And as a baby, you know he is a bad baby because he is fat. And it's just sort of like fat babies are really nice and and I I feel like there's no like like there is a nod to and his parents made him this way but like when we think about the Dursley's home as an abusive home we can't think of it just being abusive towards Harry it is abusive towards both kids in the way that abusive homes often are where there's a golden child and a scapegoat so you know Dudley is one of the characters where I think a lot of the problematic stuff comes up for me just right from the get-go that there's no sort of sympathy or compassionate treatment of a child who who cannot help his circumstances any more than Harry can. Yeah I was really I mean I've been aware of the sort of violent fat phobia in these books for a little while um but I was really noticing that about Dudley on this read, one of the things that struck me so much is um, there's the scene at the beginning, of course, where Hagrid um, puts the pig's tail on Dudley. And one of the things that I, I mean, I'm sure I was aware of this before, but that really struck me this time is that, and I think maybe the reason why it was surprising to me is because I think it's done differently in the movie. Um, in the book, it is... Hagrid is trying to punish Vernon by doing this to Dudley, which I think makes it even more horrifying to me. It's just, yeah, it's, there's, I'm trying to figure out a way to, to wrap this up eloquently. But yeah, I, I'm interested if you had thoughts on that scene, Taffer. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it is vindictive and, and cruel and really out of character for Hagrid. 
as we come to know Hagrid during the series. And that's another thing that I find interesting, rereading the first book of a very long and beloved series and seeing how the characters change and develop over over the narrative arc of seven books and, you know, ten years or however long it took. Hagrid is a person who also had adults fail him in many, many, many ways and also was, you know, bullied and made fun of. And the story we get about Dudley is really that he becomes a bully to avoid being bullied, right? Um, which, you know, is a problematic narrative, but also... I think there's space for a for a compassionate read of, of Dudley Dursley. Um, but that kind of vindictive, fatphobic uh, cruelty is so unusual from Hagrid, who is a nurturing, supportive, emotionally intelligent figure through the whole series. And like one of the things about Hagrid is he will never be mean to any of the children. Like, you know, he's an inept teacher in some ways, but we see the most care and the least partisan behavior from him, I think, of any of the teachers. Um, So it's weird. It's out of character. And I guess it makes sense in that way as one of the first interactions before maybe this character had really settled and and rounded out but it's 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 an uncomfortable scene for sure yeah i think it'll be really interesting for us to sort of trace trace dudley and how he how he is portrayed throughout the series um because yeah you're right it is that in in addition to just being sort of violent and cruel and an example of sort of somebody taking out anger not even on the person the anger is directed towards but on the most powerless person in the room which I think is something that we see a few times in this series so maybe that'll be interesting to kind of look at as we go along but it is very out of character for Hagrid thinking about character maybe I will um veer us now into one of the things that I like I said I was trying to do this reread um it was interesting, almost in an opposite way that I that I often read books for the podcast, because usually when I'm reading books for the podcast, I sort of put, make sure I have my critical hat on, because sometimes when I'm reading for pleasure, I am not looking for the things that are problematic. Um, so when I'm reading for the podcast, I often put on my critical hat um, so that I'm making sure that I'm noticing the stuff that that is that, that needs to be talked about. I found I was having to do almost the opposite with this read of Philosopher's Stone because I don't feel like I have to look that hard for the things that are problematic anymore, partially because I've read it so many times and because I've listened to a lot of critical analyses. Um, but so I was putting on my hat of trying to trying to see what it is that I have loved about it and can still love about it. Um, and so one of the things that really struck me for going to talk about characters is... Um, is the way that we see Ron and Harry's friendship start. I found really kind of like tender and precious. Um, because I've, I've been trying to think about sort of like, what are the themes, what are the themes about these books that really draw me and that um, sort of draw like, I mean, so many people who I know love Harry Potter. And, and I really love that right from the get-go, we see in the first scene with Harry and Ron, we see their relationship starting to be built on sort of this foundation of, like, mutual vulnerability um, and, like, mutual, like, empathy and compassion. 
Um, and it's really lovely. One of the things I really, really like about their uh, relationship, uh, which has been talked about to death, but but I mean, it's really hard to get to any analysis that hasn't already been done, um, is the play of privilege between the two of them. Because sort of like they have some equal footing in terms of both being white boys who are cishet, as this author wishes everybody in the world was. And uh, they really have... these very different backgrounds where Harry comes from an abusive home but is filthy rich and famous in the wizarding world um, but really doesn't have any any kind of familial stability or support and really has to build his support system but also kind of has a ready-made support system because he's famous Um, and Ron comes from an incredibly loving and supporting household and you know is very blind to that as a privilege at times, but also is quite poor and comes from a family that's that's looked down on uh, by a lot of people and is not famous and feels that very keenly. Ron is the youngest of six children, and or well, the second youngest. I am the youngest of six children, and I have felt a certain amount of... of Companionship, you know, I really understand when Ron looks in the mirror of Erised and sees himself beating out all his big siblings. Like, that is, that is so realistic. And I get that so keenly. And I do really like that, that scene, um, you know, Harry sees himself with his parents who he lost. I like that what Ron sees is not written with any less weight than what Harry sees. There is an acknowledgement that your heart's deepest desire is your heart's deepest desire. Unless you're Voldemort, in which case it's bad. But, like, I appreciate that. I appreciate that they can be very different people in a lot of ways and that they can kind of negotiate. I feel like there's this constant back and forth of, like, well, I have this, but you have this, and you don't have this, but I have this. And they they really kind of even that out, right? Like, Ron lets Harry into his family, and Harry gives Ron and his family money whenever he can because he has more. Um, And that's really, it's a really charming friendship. It's a really, I think, realistic friendship. And it's nice to see the beginnings and see them both kind of feeling like outsiders and finding each other and starting that sharing from the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It is really like, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. And I think, I think that is one of the things that, that these books do do in some ways do well is I mean there are ways in which they really fall down and we'll talk about that but um sort of yeah looking at the sort of the different ways in which the different characters hold different kinds of privilege um and the ways in which they navigate that with each other but we have to talk about Hermione Hermione is the heart of the series and the way their friendship grows is also really well written I think seeing that sort of enemies, rivals, two two friends, all of them feel whether or not they are actually, but all of them feel left out. All of them feel on the outskirts, and I think as often happens, there starts being a little rivalry there um, because there can be this tendency to sort of go, well, maybe I don't have this but she's like weirder than me or more annoying than me so I can punch down a little right and then they fight a mountain troll together in just the first of of an endless series of really 
terrible choices that they make as a group. And then they are friends, and and uh, it's a realistic friendship. They don't become friends because they all click immediately. They become friends kind of through trial and error, and that's very realistic. Yeah, I think that that line will continue to be, I think, like one of my favorite, one of my favorite lines in a book ever. I'm gonna I'm gonna just flip and find it real quick because I think I can. Um, like, there are some things you can't share without ending up liking each other, and knocking out a 12-foot mountain troll is one of them. Yes. I just, I, I like that a lot. Um, and yeah, I think, I mean, I think your assessment of, yeah, they sort of all see themselves as outsiders, and um, kind of one of the ways to make yourself feel more secure is to punch down a little bit. I think there's also, I think that they... Um, I think that Hermione very much makes them feel insecure. Like, they both, I think they both have a little bit of a, well, Harry has a little bit of a, I don't feel like I belong here because I don't know anything about the wizarding world. And Ron has a, I have something to prove um, thing going on. And I think that they really resent this other person who just, like, is so competent right off the bat. And I'm sure they definitely also resent her doubly because she's a girl. And she's so competent right off the bat. And I mean, it's very realistic. (laughs) And then also, but then they kind of, they get over themselves. And they realize that 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 wasn't a valid reason to dislike her. And yeah, it's a, they're a good trio. And and they're, they're good friends. And Hermione is just, I love Hermione so much. I want to talk about Hermione as... Uh, smart for a moment because this is something that came to me on this read through now I as a child was a smart ass uh, in school I always I always had the answer (laughs) and uh, and I always wanted to to give the answer and you know I was just I was a pain in the ass I was very much a Hermione in school I had to learn how to mellow that down Um, and and you know be nicer about it because there's also an element of like like Hermione is great but she is a know-it-all and she and she does do it too hard and she does have to learn to tone it down and that's a process that I relate to really hard but people talk a lot about Hermione as brilliant and kind of a recurring line is why aren't you in Ravenclaw Uh, because she is in Gryffindor and here's my theory about Hermione Hermione is not brilliant or does not kick ass at school because she is naturally clever, necessarily. Hermione kicks ass because she works incredibly hard. And when she comes in in the first year and already knows spells, it's because she has been reading their textbooks and studying already in advance. Um, which is, I mean, you know, it also takes a certain kind of person to find that fun. Um, but, like... She just she just busts her butt studying and justly receives top marks in compensation for this. And then Harry and Ron, who are constantly, constantly slacking off, cannot be bothered to do the work, get Hermione to do it for them, which like a true know-it-all would not do her friend's homework for them. I'm just going to say she is a bit of a revolutionary icon already. Um... She's already gaming the system, right? Because she already understands that books and cleverness are not the most important things. And that 
that friendship and loyalty and bravery are the most important things. And so, you know, she doesn't mind helping her friends work to rule. And that's, frankly, really impressive. And I like that about her. And I like that visibility of smart people aren't just smart. Smart people work hard. And when you see somebody, like there are characters who show up as kind of foils to Hermione who are clever but don't work as hard as she is through the series. And I appreciate that. Yeah, I think that is really beautiful about Hermione. Because you do often get, like often the smart character is someone who just it comes so easily to. But no, Hermione, Hermione, like preparedness is the byword of Hermione, I think. Um, like, she... And so as you were saying, I was thinking, and th- there's a specific there's a specific bit in this book that really backs that up, which is um, when she's so worried about the flying lesson. And it's not Hermione was worried because she was not naturally good at physical stuff the way that she was at books. It's Hermione was worried because you can't learn flying out of a book. Um... Which I think is just such a, like, hammer's home that, like, yeah, Hermione is good at this stuff, not just, like, because she tries so hard and because she puts the time in and um, and because she knows how to plan and how to... And it's it's great. It's uh, it's definitely, like, a celebration of, like, cerebral intelligence, but I think in a, in a slightly different way than we sometimes get it celebrated, which is really cool. Um, and so I like, I like that you brought that up. So we have like 10 minutes left because we're not taking a season to talk about the first Harry Potter book. We are taking a, you know, max hour long episode to talk about Harry Potter. Uh, We have like 15 minutes really, but like I'm going to say 10 because then we'll do 20. And I feel like we need to talk about Voldemort. And I think we also need to talk about Dumbledore. And these are both characters we're going to talk about just endlessly, I'm sure, in the next seven weeks, six weeks. Um... But what I find really interesting in a read-through of the first book is just, like, what did I think of these characters before I had their whole backstories to inform me? Can you remember the experience of reading it for the first time and not having those backstories? Yeah, like, oh, like, barely. I, I can remember fairly vividly, like, reading the first chapter of this book for the first time. Yeah, so, because, like, Dumbledore is really... I mean, you get him at the end of this book, like, getting to, like, do his whole Dumbledore thing. But before then, he's just sort of, like, this mysterious beardy guy who dresses well, um, and everybody thinks is wonderful, but is also, like, very eccentric. Um, it's very interesting. Thinking about, like, what's in this book and what makes up this first book was really interesting, because, like, you're almost halfway through before they actually get to Hogwarts. And like, I mean, Christmas is more than, more than two thirds of the way into the book. And so I don't know how that actually directly relates to Dumbledore, but it's very, it's very interesting to like, actually remember what is specifically in this first book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The other really interesting thing is, is Voldemort, who also is just kind of a shadowy figure in this book. He is he who must not be named. There is just the air of mystery around him. We know Dumbledore is the only wizard he ever really feared. We don't know that he is, um, you know, Dumbledore's former student. Uh, We don't really know anything about him. He hasn't been humanized yet, so there's also this idea that Voldemort is not human, you know, he's growing out of the back of Quirrell's head. 
You know one thing that really struck me, though, is that Quirrell is not fleshed out at all as a character. No, you get so little of him. Quirrell is just a host and then he dies. And that's such a departure from all the other Voldemort hosts that we see in the rest of the series. And I really, like, want more Quirrell backstory. I'm sure there's fanfic. There's definitely, so I'm trying to think because I definitely have some like canon backstory in my brain, okay. but it might be a Pottermore thing or it might be from a later book or it might, maybe it's from the movies. Like I definitely like remember, like I at least have the idea in my brain that it's like he was, you know, young kind of, it's not very much, but he was like young, brash, sort of wanted power, but didn't really know what to do with it. And was sort of traveling the world trying to find himself or whatever, you know. Well, he was hunting vampires, wasn't he? I don't actually know. Do we ever know if that's actually what he was doing or if that's just like a... Because we do, we do find out, right, that the whole, like, um, the whole nervousness and, like, all of that is, is something that he puts on and is not actually for real. I had a different read on that. My my read on that, because I know he says, like, who would suspect poor stuttering Professor Quirrell, but I always felt like there was kind of a, like, Gollum Smeagol thing with Quirrell. When Quirrell's humanity is emerging, when Quirrell is more under his own influence, he is horribly traumatized by the experience of being possessed um, by a terrifying entity. And he is terrified that people will find out and he is scared for his own life and, you know, is nervous all the time. And when Quirrell is more under the influence of Voldemort, he has more of that confidence and assurance because he's channeling more of Voldemort's essence. Oh, that's really interesting. I like that reading. Yeah, because I always, I think I have found that like a little bit complicated and a little bit like, that that is that that there's sort of drops at the end and it's like oh was he putting it on this entire time um but then we do also get the scenes where he's very frightened of Voldemort I like that a lot I like that reading that there's these sort of two sides to him but yeah it is very unfortunate that we never really like get an exploration of like Quirrell as a victim in all of this um because we know that Voldemort can possess people without their consent and I think we're, we're sort of led to believe that Quirrell is, like, we're supposed to think that Quirrell is consenting, at least a little bit, but, um, but it's very murky, I think. I think the interaction that Harry has with Quirrell slash Voldemort at the end of the book is entirely Voldemort. I, I very much, my reading of the situation very much is that Voldemort chose a host who would not be suspected did not want to use one of his Death Eaters, even though they're, you know, loyal and would have, because he did not want to be discovered because he had to build his strength. Now, why he would choose... Well, no, I was going to say why he would choose a Hogwarts teacher is confusing to me, but it actually makes sense, because what did Voldemort always want? Voldemort always wanted to be a Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. That is what he wanted from the beginning. So Voldemort possesses this unassuming Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher kind of gets a little thrill from being right under Dumbledore's nose, uh, gets to be close to the boy who lived. So yeah, I don't think I don't think Quirrell had to be consenting. I don't think 
there's any reason for Quirrell to be consenting. And I think that makes his character even more tragic. Absolutely, yeah. And also, I mean, so this is, I was saying at the beginning that I was going to try to think about things to say that are not just from other podcasts I listen to, but I'm going to borrow a thread of analysis from Which Please, which is Which Please likes to talk about Harry as an unreliable narrator. And I think that that, um, even though it is something that we will be sort of borrowing from Which Please, is a really important and I think fruitful way to look at these books. Because um, it's so like stark that Harry is really incurious about Quirrell, Quirrell as a person. Um, once, once he finds finds out that he's being possessed by Voldemort, um, and and everyone else also is very incurious and unsympathetic towards Quirrell as a person, which is especially interesting reading back through the books and thinking about how sort of like sympathetic the kids are when they think that Snape is working with Voldemort. And Snape is bullying Quirrell, and they're, they are so sort of supportive of Quirrell. And it's really interesting to think that that dynamic that they thought was the case at the time, and then later thought was the exact opposite of what had actually happened, might be closer to what was actually going on, that, um, that Quirrell the person was sort of fighting this battle with Voldemort. I, I think it makes sense. I think having... Um... The unreliable narrator thread is really important and really, really helpful. That was the thing, the biggest takeaway I got from Witch Please, I think, honestly, uh, that it's really helpful to think about. Um, do you think Dumbledore, why do you think Dumbledore hired Quirrell? Dumbledore's staffing choices are, like, entirely inexplicable. Um, it's also unclear whether this is Quirrell's first year teaching. It has to be because ever since Dumbledore did not give the job to Voldemort. Like, based based on the other lore of the books, right, it has to be because there's this whole, like, curse where they couldn't keep a teacher for more than a year. But, but I feel like the text is also suggesting that it's not his first year. Mm-hmm. Which this may be something where the author, like, later... Because that, that thing about it being, like, the position is cursed only starts in later books. Right, yeah. Um, because, like, when they meet Quirrell in the summer, like, dumb, like Hagrid totally knows him and is like, this is the defense against the dark arts teacher and it's nothing like, this is gonna be the new defense against the dark arts teacher or anything. Um, and none of the older students ever reference there having been a different one. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That, that makes sense, yeah. I think, I think that we have, we have caught the author out in an inconsistency which I'm just going to celebrate because, again, she's, she's trash. We yeah. don't like her. But I, I have always wondered about that because it's it doesn't quite make sense to me. Yeah, no, I think you're right that that's just an inconsistency that's uh, that's never addressed, that I'm sure has been retconned on Pottermore because everything gets retconned constantly. Ugh. Yeah, every everything gets retconned. I love these books and I, I hate their whole Disney world. <laughs> yeah, it's... I don't like it. Um, I also I also get mad at Pottermore because it consistently sorts me into the wrong house. Like, can we agree that I am like the Hufflepuffist? Am I pausing too long? Wait, I'm aware I have a Ravenclaw rising. You have you have a you have a real Ravenclaw streak. I have I have a definite like Ravenclaw rising. Um, yeah, I I'm not saying. 
you're not a Hufflepuff. I'm just saying I wouldn't say you're the most Hufflepuffalist Hufflepuffalist. I would say the most Hufflepuffalist Hufflepuff I know is Seth Day, who is the host of Radchild podcast. Mm, yeah, that's and who the first time we met showed up my house showed up at my house because I was having a rough week, and he heard about it through my partner we had never met and brought me homemade cake and wine which we shared in the garden while we talked about my hard day <laughs> and okay yeah fair <laughs> Seth beats me on this one but I think Seth has a Slytherin rising I don't know if Seth is gonna speak to me again after I said that publicly but <laughs> there's nothing wrong with Slytherin no I mean my partner's a Slytherin I admire Slytherin I, I kind of aspire to be a little more Slytherin I'm a I'm a Gryffindor I'm you're, yeah. you're very Gryffindor. Yeah. But yes, I'm a Hufflepuff with a Ravenclaw rising, which is because everyone thinks I'm a Ravenclaw at first. Like, um, I had this recently where someone, like, I said that I was a Hufflepuff, and they were like, are you sure? Like, I'm pretty sure you're a Ravenclaw. And then after getting to know me a little bit better, I was like, oh, no, yeah. That's because anytime you're nerdy, people are like, I think you must be a Ravenclaw, because everybody says I'm Ravenclaw as well. Um, but the houses are about what you value. Your your houses are really your moons, <laughs> I don't know enough. I, I don't know enough about astronomy at this point to follow this conversation it's, anymore. It's astrology. Astrology. Uh, I know. I, uh, I'm tired. I moved. Two oh, you days did. Ago. You did move. I'm so, sorry. <laughs> if I'm off my game, dear listeners, that is why, and I apologize. I uh, right before this recording was on the couch like snuggled in a blanket with the baby playing Animal Crossing and I was like I think I might take a nap and Tom was like you have a recording in 10 minutes so I don't think right now is a good time to take a nap I was like really I thought I still had an hour here's another thing that I want to talk about okay and then we have to wrap it up Professor McGonagall and how much I love her and also um I want to think about another thing I'm sort of trying to do in these books is like read them without the movies um because one of the things like that's really I think interesting and I want to pay more attention to with McGonagall is like we I think think of McGonagall as being like in her 60s or 70s because of the movies but she's described as having black hair and I think we can agree that McGonagall would like not fuck around with dyeing her hair um so therefore, McGonagall's, like, not over, like, 40, I don't think, which is very interesting to me. One side of me having started the books very early um, is that I had a very distinct picture of all of the characters. And I think the movies did a terrible job of casting everybody except for Harry, Ron, and Hermione. And even Ron, Rupert Grint is not physically accurate to the type in the book. But he won me over. But no, I mean, Snape is not as old. I mean, listen, Alan Rickman can just, I just, I'm not going to complain about Alan Rickman being in stuff. I'm not going to complain about Maggie Smith being in stuff, but I do not understand why they made everybody so old. Like, it's not restricted to the professors either. Like, Snape is too old. McGonagall is too old. uh, Sirius is too old. Lupin is too old. Um... It's just, like, I am, (sighs) we'll get to this when we get to the third book, but I am so angry at the casting they chose for Sirius Black. Um, I am just, I just, like, didn't like most of the casting choices made in the movie series. 
Um, so yeah, McGonagall is, I would say she could be in her 40s. I would say she's not over 50. She's around the same age as Snape, who you can do the math based on how old Harry's parents were when they died. Um, they were born in 61, and these books are happening in the 90s. So like, yeah, McGonagall is is like a middle-aged woman. Yeah, and even the flashbacks to Harry's parents in the movies show them being like 40, and yeah. they're supposed to be 20. Yeah, because everybody in this universe gets married super fucking young because they all might die at a moment's notice. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I have, even though this is skipping ahead books, I think I just have to... So I think there are two ca- there are two castings, at least, apart from the trio. I also think Hag- Hagrid is pretty well cast. There are two castings that I think um, I'm going to challenge you to tell me are poorly cast, which are... Um, Professor Lockhart and Professor Trelawney. This is another one of those actual difficulties for me where I love both those actors and neither of them were accurate to what I pictured. Uh, However, the second movie is the one I am the least familiar with. Um, So I don't have like a strong standing on that. I think Ewan McGregor did a great job. Uh, I love him and I have a whole story about how I think I saw him on a bus in Montreal once which doesn't make sense. But again, I think he's too old. And I feel... Wait, who who did you and McGregor play? Wait, no, I just got that really wrong, didn't I? Professor Lockhart. Kenneth Branagh is right, Lockhart. Right, so Tom, you can just edit that out for me, please. <laughs> but Kenneth, <laughs> Kenneth Branagh is even more too old. Mm, like, fair. Like, if Kenneth Branagh had done this when he was doing Much Ado About Nothing with Emma Thompson is also you know I just feel like they got so wrapped up in casting the most famous people they possibly could that they lost sight of casting the characters and again Emma Thompson did a good job but she wasn't what I pictured but that's also just that that's so like subjective casting is subjective choosing people is subjective I've talked to people who want to like throw me off a cliff for saying like that that Gary what's his butt isn't right to play serious I'll fight them but they do get mad at me, so that's that's fair. Um, we'll have to talk two about weeks. that. <laughs> yeah. Um, can I have one more movie gripe, and then we should wrap this up? Uh, yeah. Can you do it in three minutes? <laughs> yes. I will forever be mad um, that they left the like potions challenge thing out of the end sequence of the movie i get that it's not that exciting on film but that's like my favorite part of this whole book which definitely shows how much of a nerd i am because i'm like puzzles and i was always as a child really mad that i couldn't try to solve the puzzle myself because you needed to actually see it because it was based partially on sizes i have endless gripes with the fact that they changed those challenges so much endless gripes Mm, I want a mini series of Harry Potter so that we can get all the details right, but I don't want it until the author is dead so she won't get any money. Yes, fair. Folks, this is going to be a fun series, and I am looking forward to it. We have some more fun twists and turns that we're going to throw at ya. It's going to be good. Hope you're taking care of yourselves. Hope you're washing your hands. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Yeah. If you want to leave feedback, su- suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email at theyapodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at yapodcast and individually at tafferbear and at thebalesosaurus. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, and more. 
Head to patreon.com slash yapodcast to donate. Shout out to our patrons Matt Dever, Catherine Resch, Erica Stitchberry, Kat McGuire, Lizzie Tenhove, and Chantal Thomas. We have merch! Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at TeePublic. You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and by sharing this episode with a friend. Uh, Also, a little Spotify note, which I've been squeezing in here. We are on Spotify. We are hard to find. If you look for Failure is Everything, our interview with Natalie Blit comes up and you can find us from there. The more people follow us, the easier it will be to find us. Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced by Tepper Jemian and edited by Tom Zalatni as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows in our network at upfordnetwork.com. Hey there, campers. My name is Emmett, and I'm the host of Gaze in the Woods, a podcast that explores rural LGBTQIA2 experiences, from radical fairies and lesbian farmers to backwoods slam poets and community organizers organizing communities the community didn't know were there all along. Can you have a pride parade when you're the only gay in the village? What is camp when you live in a trailer? And if a genderqueer bear shares their pronouns in the forest and nobody gets it, is anything real? I don't know, but let's find out together on Gaze in the Woods, an Upford Network podcast. I'm Tom. I'm Will. And we're the hosts of Blasting Off Again, a Pokemon watch-through podcast brought to you by the Upford Network. We've taken on the monumental task of watching through every episode of Pokemon, providing in-depth analysis of everybody's favorite 90s dogfighting cartoon. We're asking the hard-hitting questions. Who's the real hero of this series? Why do some of these episodes get banned? Is Ash's treatment of his Pokemon abusive or just negligent? Is Charizard completely justified in treating Ash like the worst trainer of all time? Why don't more Pokemon have nipples? Which Pokemon would make the best professional wrestler? Is Farfetch'd your best option for Christmas dinner? Who even is that Pokemon? Are all cops bastards? Wait, I thought this was a Pokemon podcast. Uh... Anyway, tune in to Blasting Off Again on the Upward Network and we're Wherever you find your podcasts. We're, We're blasting, blasting off again. again. Ding. Ding.